Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops episode 105. Thank Ooh. you so much for listening. Holy moly, I can't believe we're here. Uh, Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. And no, and no, 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 no. Uh, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy i'm beth we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime also the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruitloopspod for all of our social media the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops Fruit Loops patron. <laughs> Excuse yeah. <me>. <laughs> uh, well, Beth, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're getting into part two on the case of Eddie Lee Mosley, a Floridian serial killer and rapist. He was responsible for the sexual assaults and murders of somewhere around eight to 100 plus black women Ooh. and girls. And two innocent black men were wrongfully convicted for some of those rapes and murders. If you have not heard part one of this case, we recommend you stop what you're doing right now. Go back to episode one and give it a listen. We'll be here when you come back. We 
promise. That's correct. Before we get there, though, how are you doing? I'm good. I took two COVID tests. and they were Yeah, two. Right. Whoops. (laughs) And they were both negative. Hallelujah. Yeah. So I'm happy about that. And I've just been uh, getting into the Christmas spirit. And uh, we're we're working on a Christmas case for y'all. So life is good. Good, good. I have to ask about the tests. Was it, is it the up the nose thing? No, the first test I took was a swab of my throat. Okay. And I gagged. Okay. (laughs) And then the second test I took, it was at the same place. I don't know why they were doing a different test, but the second test was uh, spitting into a tube. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. And they they gave me, yeah, they gave me the tube and uh, I was in line in my car Mm -hmm. and uh, sitting there for like 15 minutes, um, just waiting to get up to the front and spitting in the tube. So I practically filled it up. And when I gave it to the lady, she was like, oh, an overachiever. Oh, wow. Well, (laughs) have you met Beth? (laughs) Yes, she is. Yeah. She just can't help it. Uh, well, that's, that's okay. just how okay. I roll. <laughs> so that sounds, I mean, other than the gag part. N- yeah, that wasn't with. fun. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't got tested. So oh, you I, haven't? No, never. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you heard this, but there's the vaccine is on the way. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm excited. Are you going to take it? Oh, yeah. For reals, for reals? For reals. Yeah, but oh. I'm way down on the list. I'll, I probably won't be able to get it until like April, May, somewhere around there. Yeah, we're, pr- I mean, I'm I'm more regular than you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess it's going out. It's going, it should go out to first response, first responders and things like first, that. Yeah. But, and, and teachers and mm-hmm. stuff like and, that. Yeah. And students, right? Um, yeah. To open up the schools and, and hopefully, you know, things, things will get moving here. But they're um, actually not going to be giving it to kids. Oh, really? Yeah, because they haven't tested it on kids. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that might be concerning for teachers who are like, I'm vaccinated. Oh, but look at all these little <laughs> brats who aren't. Uh, so, oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure when they're going to have a, a vaccine ready for kids. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, uh, stay tuned, I suppose. Uh, but we're moving in the right direction. I know yeah. that um, black people in general have a general distrust for the medical system in the United States. Tuskegee experiments yep. only happened about 40, 50 years ago. And the whole science of gynecology was based on the experimentation of black enslaved women's bodies and uh so for uh for black people to be concerned uh is uh it's a it's not unusual and pretty normal yeah pretty normal yeah and um president barack obama was on 60 minutes last week and was like i i get it i understand but he was like i'm gonna take the vaccine if, if the doctors say that it's safe so if that guy takes it um I guess I will too. I mean, I really want to. <laughs> what really about wanna, what if? What about if Oprah takes it? If man, if Oprah told me to shit in my hand and wipe it all <laughs> over my face, you would do I it. I would do it if she was like, "This will like heal you." I would, I would do anything Auntie Oprah told me to do. So if Oprah takes all right, it, Auntie I mean, Oprah, I am taking it. And uh, 
I I just miss like life. We're yeah. doing stuff here to like try to pass. I bought my kids a punching bag. Um, we're getting a trampoline. We've been roller skating our brains out, meditating. Yeah. Like we're doing so many to things. Find to, things to do. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean it's the holidays, right? It's you know Christmas, Hanukkah. I think started for for some. Um, Kwanzaa's coming up. Like we're just trying to fill the days. So we don't lose our minds. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, anyway, so I, I, I think I will take the vaccine if Oprah and Brock take it too. So <laughs> anyway, right, you hear that, Oprah and Brock? Yeah. You know what? And you listening, I am curious what you guys are going to do, what your thoughts are on this vaccine um, business, because I want life to get back to normal, but, but I am apprehensive about, you know. American yeah. medicine on my black yeah. body. Understandable. Uh, yeah. Thank you for understanding. That's why she's my favorite white lady. So now <laughs> we're going to get into some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. Just love that sound. What's in I that bag, <laughs> Well, we got an email from Amber who said, Hi, new listener here. I'm currently working through the back catalog now. I'm listening to episode 40, The Poughkeepsie Killer. And I heard y'all mention the Seven Sister Colleges and POCs. I am a graduate of a Seven Sisters, Smith. Oh. And the school has a day to honor the first POC to graduate from Smith. Wow. It's a day full of workshops and speakers. I encourage you all to check it out. While Smith had its own problems with racism, classism, and genderism, it does work hard to prevent this and educate its students to do better. And then uh, she said, there were more than likely white passing POCs to graduate from Smith before Ms. Cromwell, class of 1900, but she is recognized as the first to enter and leave Smith as a POC. That is really interesting. Yeah. And the whole the whole white passing element is, I mean, we could do a whole series of episodes episodes on um, white passing. But yeah, um, I think that's really cool that uh, the university is doing that. Uh, and I do, too. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I have a lot of criticisms for higher education and how they treat all the isms. Um, but that's yeah. that's I think that's a step in the right direction. So shout out to yeah. Amber uh, and your university for doing right. Yeah. So we got some new patrons and I think I might have missed this one. So our bad if I did. And also our bad if you're getting a like a deuce. A duplicate. duplicate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Paula J, I'm sorry if we missed you. And Marie S. Um, so <clears throat> this is for you, Paula J. Welcome to my house. Paula, take control now. We can't even slow down. Hey, uh, next, Marie <laughs> S. I was going to do Maria, Maria, but we did that already a long time ago for the last Marie. This is a new special Marie S. So here goes. <laughs> a mi me gusta que baile Marie S. Hoy, Fruit Loops, tu me hablas sabroso. <laughs> if you understood, <laughs> uh, give me a hand clap of praise. Amen. Uh, and then uh, we... <laughs> started this new coffee coffee donor thing and shout out to all they're like coming in so like too many I know, for, that's so cool. up with, and we haven't figured out how we're gonna thank you guys but i'm just gonna i'm feeling hot 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 so shout out to coffee donor uh from denise r thank you boo 
And a super duper white hot thank you to Anj Panj for our Kofi. Remember that one, Beth? That yeah. Was a big ass I, one. Yeah. I, I uh, messaged you right yeah. away. Holy shit. Jaws, <laughs> jaws to the floor. So yeah. now they've been scraped up so and much. we can record our show because uh, I do need the bottom <laughs> jaw. And uh, we just want to thank all of you. So everybody, ooh, ooh, I just inadvertently lost my hip hop air horn button. Here it is. <laughs> Thank you, one and all. Uh, everybody. Yes. And uh, remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Eddie Lee Mosley, a black Floridian serial killer and rapist. According to our podcast play cousin, true crime Phil, Phil Chalmers, Mm -hmm. he is one of the deadliest serial killers in history, and he recently died in May of 2020. All right. So now we're going to dive back into the timeline, and uh, I'll let you take it away, Beth. When we left the story last week, Mosley had been convicted of a rape and received 15 years, but his attorney was able to appeal that sentence and he managed a plea deal. And on November 15th, 1983, Mosley was released from jail after serving just three and a half years. Yeah, and I don't know. I, don't, I just don't know how he pulled this off. I know. Right? He was poor, right? He yeah. was poor. He was black. I don't know how he managed to um, really uh, benefit so much from the justice system yeah. working in his favor. It's mind boggling. It is. Uh, but it is Florida, so yeah. You know, the only I thing know. I can think is maybe he somehow was a sympathetic figure, like you know he was mentally challenged, uh-huh. and I think um, maybe he got some sympathy somehow or another. Mm. I don't know. That's my only maybe. guess. Okay, OG a true crime. That's what she said. <laughs> so that's what we're going with. That's just a guess. Uh- So a month after his release on December 17th, 1983, Geraldine Barfield, 35, was driven home by a co-worker slash friend who dropped her off in the street outside her apartment at about 4.30 a.m. Geraldine had three children and a grandchild and worked as a cocktail server at Booker's Package and Lounge. This was the last time she was ever seen alive. On December 19th, 1983, the body of Geraldine Barfield was found in a field behind Emmanuel Church of God in Christ in the northwest section of Fort Lauderdale. Her death was due to asphyxiation or strangulation. On Christmas Eve of 1983, Emma Cook was murdered. Emma Cook was a grandmother who was just a few uh, weeks away, I thought it was days away, from her 50th birthday. Um, Either way, she was almost 50. Emma's granddaughter, Katrina, told police that on Christmas Eve, Emma left her home at 7 p.m. She left her purse at home and headed to Smiling Jack's Bar. Emma was at the bar for several hours that night, drinking and dancing. Emma left the bar with a man named Jesse. Jesse actually was Eddie Lee Mosley. He often gave people that fake name, Jesse. Yes. Um, interesting that she left her home without her purse. I'm just guessing that this was a neighborhood bar and mm-hmm. uh, it was a place that she frequented quite often. And maybe mm-hmm. she would just go down there and have a drink or two and then come home. And mm-hmm. maybe that's what she was planning on doing that night. I don't know. Mm. Also, very hard to cut a rug with a purse on. Yeah, Uh, that's true. Yeah. I know from experience. Yeah, she Uh, might have just put some cash in her pocket and went down. mm -hmm. At about 8 a.m. the next morning on Christmas Day, some kids riding their bikes noticed what they thought was a drunk man hanging out of the window of an abandoned building. They told an adult and the police were called. 
it was Emma. She was found with her clothing pushed up around her neck and she was wearing an Avon ring. Her underwear, pants and shoes were found inside the building. An autopsy revealed that she had been raped and strangled. It also showed signs that she had fought back. I feel like we should tell people what Avon is because there might be some younger people who are like, Avon, what the? Yeah, go ahead. So Avon is a multi-level marketing company from, I don't know when it started, if it was the late 70s or 80s. 70s, maybe even the 60s, who knows? Maybe my mom sold Avon. I don't know. Did you or your mom sell Avon? No, but my mom always had friends who sold it and we always ordered stuff from Avon. Yeah, yeah. So Avon would sell basically like skincare products products, makeup, um, shower gels, just like jewelry, um, beauty, yeah. jewelry, health, all kinds of um, any anything you could sell. And it was a way for women maybe who had mostly been working in the home to get some extra get cash extra money, yeah. Um, yeah, by selling um, these items. And there was always an Avon catalog like yeah. in, in like the doctor's office or if you went to somebody's house, there was the Avon catalog, right? So yeah. ev- everybody knew or had an Avon lady some somewhere in their life yep. in the 80s. Um, on May 16th, 1984, Mosley was again charged with sexual battery when he began talking to a woman in Bass Park and invited her to a field to share some beer and marijuana. He then demanded sex, then raped and tried to choke her. Mosley was again evaluated by a court-appointed psychiatrist. Dr. Arnold Zager had seen Mosley twice before, in 1980 and in 1981. His evaluation said, quote, This gentleman, if released, will be a danger to society in the future and most definitely will be prone to commit future acts of sexual battery, unquote. But did they listen? Nope. Let's see. Mostly <laughs> pleaded not guilty to the charge. During the trial, his defense attorney revealed the woman's history of sex work and argued that she had given consent to the sex act, um, but not the choking part. And I think I, I, this is maybe this is a newer thing, not a thing that happened in the 80s. You can say no at any point, even if you gave consent. Right. You can relinquish it. Right. And um the other thing that bugs me about this is that, uh, and it's, it still happens to this day, is that when rape is a really hard crime to prove and a woman's sexual history, all the things are put on trial except for the perp's actions. Yeah. And anyway, because of what the defense attorney painted as her acts that basically made it look like she deserved it or wanted it. Yeah, that really bugs me too because, um, you know, they're making it sound like because she was a sex worker that it was okay to rape her. Right, it was allowed, yeah. which is absolutely Bullshit. not the case. Yeah. Yeah, and I told, I warned you before we started recording that I've been reading my feminine, my black feminist <laughs> material. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that that is kind of interesting about America is there's racism and white supremacy. But one thing that black males and white males or males of any race can always bond over is the patriarchy. Right. And that no matter what color you are, you've got a dick, you're a dude. So you're on top. (laughs) Thumbs up. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, I digress. The jury found Mosley not guilty and he was released on October 25th, 1984. And the bodies kept coming. On November 26, 1984, the badly decomposed remains of Loretta Brown, a 29-year-old black woman, were found. Loretta was a married mother of two and sold Avon products door-to-door. 
She was petite and apparently had a steel plate in her back secondary to a motorcycle accident. Her husband last saw her on November 8th, and friends and family reported that they last saw her on November 10th. Her body was discovered in a closet located behind the altar of a church located less than a quarter mile from her home. She was found after churchgoers noticed a foul odor beginning around Thanksgiving. She was naked and found covered with a curtain. That would be horrific. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And last seen on the 8th, November or Thanksgiving's the third week in November, right? right. So, whew, yeah, in Florida. Yeah. I mean, man. Yeah. Yeah. Unpleasant. There was evidence that she was attacked outside of the church and carried into the building. The cause of death was asphyxiation, and she had been dead two to three weeks. Mm. DNA in 2001 confirmed that she was one of Mosley's victims. Let me get a hip-hop air horn for DNA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Uh, on December 18th, 1984, the body of 24-year-old Teresa Giles was discovered early in the morning in a church building that was under construction, uh, not far from Mosley's home. She had been raped and murdered. And I only I, I'm like chuckling a little bit, not at this woman's death, but the fact that the church, the black church was under construction is a running joke in black communities. Really? Because, yeah, because black churches always have a building fund and are always <laughs> built like always building more but more. there's like it's never it's never, never finished, finished or never like never comes to fruition people are just always contributing to Money. this black church building fund <laughs> but where's the new building pastor uh anyway and the past so, pastor's taking the money and uh going to las vegas or something so, <laughs> i'm telling you we've okay so my dad was i'm a pk mm -hmm. before my dad's time at the same church <laughs> this pastor was using the church building fund to buy drugs oh my gosh uh, <laughs> and then uh, we had another pastor in our in, at a church we went to in the Bay Area, and whoo, this pastor was one of those super flamboyant um, black pastors. Man, this is a big ass tangent. But if you've never been to a black church, um, let me just paint the picture for you. So it's a it's a big ass building, and the pastor has like Armani suits, gold chains, wow. shoes with no socks, alligator print. Um, he wears fur coats. Oh my god! Driving the nicest cars, and when they ask for the collection plate, uh, you know they're like begging people to come up and give their money. Oh right? my gosh! Uh, who who among us can 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 give? Uh, you, the Bible says you got to tithe ten percent. Ten percent. Come on, sister. I know you. I know you got it. Uh. And the music will just keep playing until everybody has got up there, off their asses and given the pastor the money in those gold collection plates. Otherwise, you're going to be there for hours. Oh just give them the money. Anyway, <laughs> tangent. Uh, but the point is, black churches always seem to have a building fund. It is a running joke in um, among the culture. And I'm sorry. Again, this was about Teresa Giles and her passing away. What else happened, Beth? Sorry. <laughs> okay, let me get serious now. Okay. Teresa Giles had a couple of legal issues in her past, cannabis possession in March, which was a misdemeanor, and theft charges in August, both in 1984. She pled guilty and was sentenced to probation. My, how far we've come, right? How marijuana is legal yeah. in so many states. Yeah. And uh, gosh, in Florida, I think um, uh, people convicts can vote now. Um, oh, wow. Convicted felons. I believe, or, or 
can somehow regain the right to vote if they've served their time and paid their fines. Oh. Uh, back to the story. Neither made her deserving of rape or murder. Amen. But you wouldn't know that by reading the media accounts at the time. My impression is that Teresa and her family were just doing their best to try to survive. Yeah. Teresa was last seen on December 11th, 1984, eight days before her body was discovered. At the time, Teresa was living with her in-laws. In November, Teresa's husband had been arrested and was in jail for the month of December because he couldn't afford bond while awaiting trial. And uh, that made me sad because he never he didn't get to see her. And, uh, you know, she died. Yeah, she. uh, Yeah. Another unfortunate thing is that people have to stay in jail, poor people, because they cannot afford um, bail. Yeah. Yeah. The bond. And it's um, it's the bond. It's a predatory system um, and very unfair. And uh, agreed. Unfortunately, Teresa's husband wasn't able to get out or see her. So on April 11th, 1985, eight year old Chandra Whitehead was sleeping in her home while her mother was at work. When her mother came home, she saw a man jumping out of a window. Inside, she found her daughter covered in blood and a piece of cloth tied around her neck. She had been raped, hit on the head with a rock and choked. She never gained consciousness and died nine days after she was found. That is sad. sad. A man named Frankly Smith was picked up for questioning. Smith suffered a lifetime of poverty, abandonment, neglect, abuse, alcoholism, and mental illness. His family was destitute, living as sharecroppers in a racially segregated South Georgia. Both of his parents were uneducated and barely able to provide for themselves, let alone a growing family. His mother was very young when they married, somewhere around 14 years old. And not long after Smith was born, his father was killed killed by police. Wow. Um, they said that his family was uh, sharecroppers. So yeah. uh, welcome to Culture Corner. Ding. We need a sound effect for Culture <laughs> Corner. Anyway, uh, sharecropping. Sa- I wanted to talk about this because sa- I think people hear it and are like, oh, sharecropping sounds no big deal. But it really is or and was a reiteration of slavery. When slavery was abolished and enslaved people were emancipated, a.k.a. freed, plantation owners were paid reparations by the U.S. government. And there was a problem. What are we going to do with all these recently freed, unemployed black people? What will happen to our cotton and tobacco crops? Um, American post-chattel slavery sharecropping is when black families were uh, allowed to rent small plots of land or shares to work themselves. And in return, they would give a portion of their crop or a profit from the crop to the landowner at the end of the year. And they were promised you can eventually pay this off and own it yourself. But they rarely made a profit and usually ended up owing more than they made. Another fun fact about the end of slavery in the South is, again, all the uh, plantation owners and um, people who were wealthy as a result of all these crops that enslaved people worked lost a lot of money. And we talk about the Great Migration. This was when the Great Migration began. And when Black people started leaving the South because they weren't making any money as sharecroppers and wanted to flee all this violence, Southerners were like, well, who's going to work then? We can't have them leaving. Why are they leaving? No fair. Who's going to do all the work for us? So instead of like being nice (laughs) to the Black people or like, paying them more money they just started killing them and threatening them with violence and like robbing them or robbing them of their money so that they couldn't leave like just just total like yeah awful but also 
use your brain, Southerners. <laughs> white Southerners. Like, if you don't want them to leave, just be nice. But they couldn't let go of that white supremacy. Anyway, I'm sorry. I digress. What do you got, Beth? <laughs> when Frank Lee Smith was about three years old, his mother, Ruby, was holding him in her arms while she was at a bar. A fight broke out and someone threw a bottle that split open Frank's head so badly that his brain tissue was actually exposed. This and another serious head injury when Frank was a teenager resulted in brain damage from which Frank would never recover. When Frank was still a young boy, Ruby and her children moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Having no job skills and no reliable income, Ruby turned to sex work and eventually she herself was brutally raped and murdered. At the age of 13, Frank got into a fight with a 14-year-old boy named John Wesley Spann. The two scuffled, Smith stabbed Spann, and Spann died. Smith was convicted of manslaughter and sent to the Florida School for Boys at Okeechobee, a facility that was known at the time for overcrowding, hog-tying of young boys, sexual abuse, and other cruel treatment. At the boys' home, Frank was subjected to beatings from staff and peers, sexual molestation, and drug use. I'm just uh, floored at all of um, yeah. those things yeah. for such a young boy to have to yeah, undergo and all the other young boys. Shitty, shitty life. Yeah. After he spent 11 months in the reform school, reform, quote unquote, uh, he was released. But in 1966, he was convicted of the murder of 37-year-old Herbert DeWitt, who was shot to death during a robbery. He was then paroled in 1981. So these were completely different types of crimes from the murders of women that were occurring in Fort Lauderdale at the time. In any case, Smith swore when he was released that he would never do anything to get himself into prison again. A woman named Chiquita Lowe, who was 19 years old at the time, told police that about half an hour before the murder of Chandra Whitehead, she saw a man in the neighborhood. She helped police draw up a composite picture of the man. Frank Lee Smith was picked up while walking in the neighborhood. The boy who Smith killed when he was 13, John Wesley Spann, was apparently a relative of Chandra's. Plus, Smith had a record, so police evidently decided that he was good for Chandra's murder. Smith was arrested on April 18, 1985, after being shown a photo lineup, and under pressure, Chiquita Lowe identified Frank Lee Smith as the man she saw. At trial, the key homicide investigators, Richard Sheff and Phil Amabile, testified that in their interrogation of Smith, they lied and told him that Chandra's brother had woken up during the crime and saw Smith and that he could identify him. It was an interrogation tactic often used by police, and in this case, they said it worked, and Smith unintentionally incriminated himself by saying that the brother could not have seen him quote, because it was too dark, unquote. Mm. Um, don't talk to the police yeah. ever. They can lie to you yep. and it cannot turn out well. No physical evidence connected Smith to the offense and there were no tapes or transcripts of the interrogation. And during sentencing, Frank Lee Smith denied he ever made the statement that the police said he did. However, his statement was presented to the jury as an involuntary confession. The state's case rested entirely on the witness testimony of three people. Dorothy McGriff, the victim's mother, identified Mr. Smith by the shape of his shoulders, but could not describe the face of the man she'd seen at the scene. Gerald Davis could only say that Smith looked like a man he had encountered near the scene, 
but he could not make a positive identification. Chiquita Lowe, the state's key witness, identified Mr. Smith as the man she spoke to outside the victim's home on the night of the offense. Smith was convicted of Chandra's murder, and in February 1986, he received the death penalty. Four years after Frank Lee Smith's conviction, his post-conviction attorneys set out to prove their hunch that Mosley was the real killer. In 1989, private investigator Jeff Smith showed Chiquita Lowe a photo of Mosley. Chiquita Lowe then recanted her testimony. Quote, when I looked at the picture, everything came back to me, she wrote in an affidavit. I swear on my mother's grave that the man in the photo is the man I saw on the street that night when the little girl was raped and killed. I identified the wrong man in the courtroom, unquote. What a heavy um, burden. Burden. Yeah. Right. Lowe also insisted detectives never showed her a photograph of Mosley. Lowe said that she had been pressured by the original prosecutor to testify that it was Frankly Smith. Remember, she was only 19 years old at the time. Yeah. The police failed to look at other suspects, including Eddie Lee Mosley. The composite sketch of the perpetrator drawn from Chiquita Lowe's description and that of another person who had seen a man in the area the night of the murder matched Eddie Lee Mosley far better than Frank Lee Smith. But the Mm. Broward County Sheriff's Office never investigated Mosley as a possible suspect, not even after Chiquita Lowe recanted her testimony and said it was Mosley that she saw. Um, And interesting uh, is that police departments, sheriff's departments, law enforcement and prosecutor's offices often don't do that. Once they have somebody, even though there's evidence available contradicting their idea of justice, they are reluctant and fight tooth and nail to avoid getting to the real truth. It's um, really uh, frustrating element of our justice system here. Uh, Detective Richard Sheff claimed in court that he had shown Chiquita Lowe a lineup with Mosley's photo in it, despite evidence to the contrary, including the original prosecutor who said he never saw the evidence of this lineup. It wasn't until 1998, during another hearing in Smith's case, that Sheff actually brought the alleged Mosley photo lineup to court. He testified that it had been in the Broward Sheriff's Office file on Smith all along and Uh stated confidently that he remembered showing it to the witness. Apparently, the judges found Chef more believable than Lowe, and Frank Lee Smith was never awarded a new trial. Oh, man. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. I'll tell you that on February 24th, 1987, the body of Santrail Lowe, 24, was found in a junkyard on Northwest 6th Place. She had been raped and strangled, but the case was not considered a priority. It was handed to Detective Kevin Allen, the newest investigator in the Fort Lauderdale Homicide Division. After two weeks with little success, Allen looked for help. And there he bumped into Doug Evans, who had been transferred from the homicide unit and was two months from retirement. And I believe they put their heads together. And for the next three months, Allen gathered details of the 12 unsolved murders that took place within walking distance of Eddie Mosley's home. And uh, we mentioned earlier that Doug Evans was the black um, Fort Lauderdale police officer or officer or detective 
perspective. I don't know. I don't know which one. But anyway, he was on that force and the Fort Lauderdale Police Department compared to the Broward County Sheriff's Department did a much better job yeah. at following the evidence like and pursuing day. the case. Yeah, for reals, for reals. Uh, he interviewed psychiatrists, re-interviewed rape victims and talked to inmates who shared prison time with Mosley. He checked school and institutional records and then took his mountain of information to the FBI's VICAP program. Without any information on any one suspect and using police and medical examiner reports from Fort Lauderdale, the VICAP unit sent back a profile of the suspect detectives should be looking for. An unmarried middle-aged black man living in the area of the murders, he would be a streetwise school dropout with a history of mental illness and below average intelligence. He would have no military experience, would dabble in alcohol and drugs, and be a loner who walked the streets at night. He would have been questioned before about the allegations and would have denied them. He would have been irritable and impulsive before committing the crime and would feign illness afterwards. The FBI also sketched a scenario for handling future contacts with Mosley. Also, I just wanted to say, I was like, what the hell is VICAP? <laughs> uh, it's the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, so there we go. Look at us putting our heads together. <laughs> Thanks, Googleisha. On the night of May 17th, 1987, Mosley was picked up for stealing plants from a nursery and he was interrogated. According to Detective Kevin Allen, he's much more savvy than anyone ever gave him credit for. When we finally got the chance to interview him, we did everything the profiler suggested. After five hours, he just said, well, I guess they got me. In his 1987 confession to Detective Kevin Allen, Mosley discussed the death of Emma Cook. Allen asked Mosley to pinpoint when Mosley became aware that Emma was dead. Mosley stated, quote, when I put it in, she was moving. So after about 30 minutes, I reckon I got up. I said, let's go. Come on, let's get out of here before the police come. So she laid down, right? I said, hey, let's go. Let's get out of here. I got sort of scared. I peeked out the window because she didn't get up, right? I'm spe- I'm without words. Jaw on the floor. Uh, Alan, whew, let me pick it up here. Proceed. Alan pressed Mosley on this. Did you touch her to see if, you know, maybe you could help her? Mosley responded that he didn't try to pick her up, but he did try to shake her leg. But rough. I mean, hard. Hey, hey, she do not move. Alan asked Mosley if he knew Emma was dead. To me, she was dead, but I didn't know if she was dead or not because some people, they pass out. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. And oh, scene. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, 
we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Mosley's blood group was matched with the semen samples taken from the bodies of the murder victims, and it was found to be a match. Finally, the police were able to place Mosley at the scene of a rape and strangulation, and he was charged with murder on May 18, 1987. This time, police believe that they had enough evidence to lock Mosley away forever. And on July 22, 1987, Eddie Lee Mosley was indicted by a Broward County grand jury for the murders of Emma Cook and Teresa Giles. All right, we're getting somewhere. So now we're going to get into the trial. Now, when asked why he is in jail, Mosley said, they taken advantage of me because I ain't got no understanding and I ain't got no education. During a recorded interview, Mosley sat for three hours with a doctor and his public defender. He said he was innocent, that he would never intentionally hurt anyone. I'm just an old junk man. My mind's on money, feeling good, drinking a little beer, a little wine, getting a little lady when I want to, feeling good. <laughs> sorry, I got into character there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mosley did not deny meeting women and having sex with them. Quote, I got a lot of women's out there. We have sex. Come to my house or somewhere. It's no problem, Mosley says. But Mosley also says of his sexual partners, if she disfuse me, I don't bother her. I do not touch her. But other people told a different story of Mosley's dealings with women. I have seen him slap them and hit them and pull their hair and choke them, says Elijah James, a crack dealer from the Northwest streets. He goes off and he say, you going to do this. You ain't going to play with me. You smoke my dope. You tell me you're going to make love. He goes off. The man goes off completely. He's a raging bull and don't nobody try to stop him because most of the people be scared of him. His trial began on July 27th. 1987, with a number of sex workers working at the Fort Lauderdale red light districts, testifying that Mosley had repeatedly demonstrated aggressive behavior towards women in front of crowds of witnesses. Mm. 
court-appointed psychologists and psychiatrists again testified about Mosley's mental condition. Based on various tests, Mosley's IQ was measured at 51 points. Because of this, it was ruled that he was incompetent to stand trial. And on October 23rd, he was sentenced to compulsory treatment at the Florida State Hospital. So uh, now we're going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. For the rest of his life, Mosley was shuffled between various clinics and mental institutions in the state. In 2000, a sample of his saliva and blood were taken for DNA testing, which proved his guilt in the murders of Loretta Young Brown, Veta Turner, Sonia Marion, Terry Jean Cummings, Nahomia Gamble, and eight-year-old Chandra Whitehead, as well as the murders which he'd already confessed to, those of Emma Cook and Teresa Giles. Well, uh, shout out to DNA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jerry Frank Townsend spent 22 years in prison for the series of murders that DNA later showed he did not commit. Townsend, who had the mental functioning of an eight-year-old when he was 57, received $2 million from the sheriff's office, and the sheriff apologized. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is, that is very rare. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, I, I've, I've shouted this out a gazillion times that show uh, the podcast Wrongful Convictions. Right. And apologies are so rare. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Yeah. In a 2009 article, Donald Spadaro, who acted as Townsend's legal guardian because of his mental disabilities, said that since he was freed, Townsend enjoyed spending time with his family and getting acquainted with his young grandsons. Quote, he enjoys going to their football games, said Spadaro. I was going to say, I, I remember from the first episode, this was the gentleman who, when he was sentenced to life, said... How long is life? Right. Because I want to get out and spend time with my family. Right. So it took some time, but he finally got it. Uh, the case became a notorious example of how mentally challenged people are particularly vulnerable to making false confessions under pressure from law enforcement. The Broward Sheriff's Office and its deputies, quote, fabricated evidence, concealed exculpatory evidence, tampered with witnesses and coerced a false confession by intimidation and deception from Townsend, who they knew was a mentally challenged person, end quote, the civil suit claimed. In 2000, Frankly Smith died of pancreatic cancer on death row, alone and inadequately treated, just months before DNA exonerated him of raping and murdering Chandra Whitehead. Mm. More than 13 years later, his family's civil lawsuit against the Broward Sheriff's Office and the two detectives accused of framing him was settled for just $340,000, including attorney fees and legal costs. So, um, Nothing, basically, because that was probably all eaten up. Yeah. Um, so justice, small J. Yeah. Um, I feel so bad for, for Smith. Me too. Me too. Um, but Smith's death made him a national symbol because it was the first case in the U.S. that scientifically proved an, an innocent man had died in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Smith's exoneration led to a governor's investigation into the conduct of the detectives on the case, Richard Sheff and Phil Amabile. The lawsuit says Mosley had become like Teflon, and Sheff and Amabile needed to find a suspect to whom the charges would stick. But the two were cleared of 
of perjury in an investigation ordered by Governor Jeb Bush. Oh, my God. <laughs> Please laugh. No, I I am just so, like, repulsed by seeing yeah, his name. I know. Oh, Gross. man, that makes it worse. Okay. Prosecutor Lawrence Merman said he chose not to charge Chef because he couldn't prove the former homicide detective had knowingly lied. What? Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, okay. Chiquita, yeah. Uh, look, knowingly, police do it all the time. Oh, oh, my God. Chiquita Lowe was racked with guilt and visited Frankly Smith's grave regularly. She saved up money to buy him a headstone. Mosley died of COVID-19 on May mm. 28, 2020 in Mariana, Florida. He was 74 years old. After his death, the Jackson County Times obituary stated that Mosley had a servant heart. It did not mention his victims or his crimes. Okay, so uh, Jackson County Times uh, can have bags of dicks. Um, um, I wanted to also explain with uh, obituaries. Okay. Usually it's the family who wrote, writes the obituary. Oh, okay. Take back the bags of dicks that I said. <laughs> um, but I think there was another article written about him that that facebook page that we've um referenced numerous times yeah um that that author found and also pointed out to the fact that there was an article written and again you'll have to check out the facebook page because it is very lengthy and full of tons of information yeah, about this case check that out. but point yeah but pointed out that um there was an article written about him that did not mention um the victim's names and it wasn't an obituary it was an actual article, article. about I believe about mostly. Oh, so wow. anyway, the victims throughout since the beginning of the case to the end basically have not gotten very much notoriety because yeah. they were black women. Yeah. Um, Mosley left trauma in his wake that is still alive today, even though he is dead. Mosley's family still own the house where he lived in the 70s and 80s, and many of his victims and their families still live in the area near Dillard High School. Uh, Doug Evans, the uh, officer who, or yeah, the lawman who <laughs> um, never wavered in his theory that it was Mosley, his family still owns a home in the area, and many of his of Mosley's surviving rape victims still live in the neighborhood as well. Um, um, there are dozens of him of them who have who had the courage to report the rapes and confront Mosley in uh, in in that last trial, and so uh, hip hop air horns to the survivors yeah. and um, yeah, and uh, uh, rest in power to all those uh, queens. Um, so now we're going to get into what we think made her made him snap, as well as our takeaways. What do you got, Beth? Ooh, I'm dying in here. <laughs> Dr. John Spencer, an administrator at the jail where Mosley was housed before his second trial, said that Mosley was big and fearless. Dr. Spencer saw Mosley four or five days a week, three to four hours a day during the nine months he was held in the unit for the criminally insane. He believed that Mosley, by his history and by his clinical profile and presentation, possessed a significant risk to society. Spencer considered Mosley a sociopath, but rather than cunning, he thought Mosley was instinctual. Quote, mm -hmm. I just mean that he happens along like a shark swimming through the water. And when he comes across something edible, he eats it. Unquote. Terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think Mosley's primary motivation was rape. 
Um, mm-hmm. Before he started murdering women, he was raping them. Remember, there was like, I don't know, 150 rapes yes. <laughs> in like yeah. three years or something. Um, uh-huh. But he wasn't killing them. Um, mm-hmm. But then he was arrested and he got some time for rape and then he started killing them. So although I, I think he presented it like the murders were accidental, like that whole spiel he gave uh, i thought you know i thought she was dead she wasn't moving all that stuff yeah um, yeah he, he was acting like uh it, it was accidental i i don't think they were um oh. i think maybe the rapes were instinctual but i don't think the murders were oh okay <laughs> so i watched a film um called requiem for frankly smith oh word yeah it's a pbs cool. frontline film oh okay the filmmaker her name is ofra bickle mm-hmm. and something that she said uh really i found i found really striking mm. um she said quote what i'm drawn to she's talking about uh films and the subjects she's drawn to what i'm drawn okay. to is the difference between perception and reality if you like the system and she's talking about the justice system be my guest but at least know what it is it's not a trial system it's a plea bargaining system it Mm. really gripes me when people say this is not a perfect system but it's the best in the world and uh she's right it is a plea bargain system right there is no justice really yeah you're absolutely right Um yeah Brian Stevenson says that a, lo- a, a lot. Brian Stevenson is the is the black man who his career, his legal career has been getting people off of death row. Right. Either people who've been wrongfully convicted or people who just don't deserve to be killed because we as human beings don't have the right to do that to other human beings, right. my opinion. But uh, he says it is a plea system. And if people stop taking pleas and just every if every single person in the system went to trial, the system would grind to a halt. Yeah. It, it would crash. It would get blocked up. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's no way they could have all those trials. Yes. Um. So, yeah, people think the justice system is fair, but it's not. People who are affluent and white have a much better chance in our justice system from even the pettiest of crimes right up to homicide. Like mm-hmm. um, if you get a ticket for speeding, there's a fine. The fine doesn't take into account what your financial situation is. So if you're rich and you speed and get a $200 fine, that's nothing. That's like nickels to them. Mm-hmm. But if you're poor, $200 could mean the difference between having a place to live or not. Talk about it. Yeah. Okay. And I, I'm going off on a tangent, but um, I'm just I'm just snapping because I am fully in agreement. Yes, I personally think that uh, fines should be percentage of your income rather than mm-hmm. a flat fine. Like I don't know. Mm-hmm. And if you've got no money, you should be given the option of doing community service instead. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. You shouldn't get evicted from your house because you got a speeding ticket. Oh my God, Beth! <laughs> oh my God! Look at this white lady. <laughs> Oh my God! Yes, bars. <laughs> anyway, as as far as homicides go, um, people need to like this case just brought it home. You know, all of the cases, but um, yeah, just thinking about this case, people need to start giving a shit about BIPOC victims. In the words yeah. of the viral meme that's going around, "quote I don't know how to explain to you why you should care about other people." Unquote. That's how I feel every time uh, we talk about these things. Like why? Why are we explaining to you 
talk about it Beth talk about it speak on it speak on it and I think that the biggest problem with this case was that uh, people just did not care about the victims about who the actual perpetrator was about the um, innocent men who got convicted you know they just nobody cared it's a big problem If I was standing, I would have just been brought to my knees, Beth. I am holding on to something right now because, wow, you just you just sent me. You just read the entire justice system and the way our world is today for filth. Yeah. Because um, why? Yeah. And when people say BIPOC lives matter, really, it's Black Lives Matter, but Black, Indigenous, people of color, women, marginalized people, all these lives matter because when theirs matter, everybody everybody's matter. Every yeah. single person. Yep. And I was telling you the other day about the whole mask thing. I, this is another tangent, but like um, this doctor was like wearing a mask and some jerk in the store was like, you know, calling her a pussy or some oh shit God. like that. And she was like, you know what? I'm just glad that I care more about you to wear a mask than I do about myself. And he had no response yeah. because that's, that's just it. Caring about other people, other people, yeah. um, man. Uh, well, I feel like my take is trash compared to yours. Oh, no. uh, <laughs> oh wise OG of true crime. <laughs> I don't even want to open my mouth, oh, but ahead. here I'll go. I don't think he snapped. I think his mental disabilities affected his impulse control. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I believe what that doctor said, that he was a sociopath, and I think he was just an evil human being. Yeah. Um, Broward County Sheriff's are messy assholes and to those crooked ass cops um uh shame on you and you get all of the bags of dicks uh <laughs> and uh the ones who made a case against townsend and and smith um and the state's attorney uh i think his name was sats deserves bags of dicks as well yeah. and i believe that those uh, investigators are still alive um as leslie jones said they deserve to be fucked in the ass with the largest dildo in the bag of dicks with zero vaseline zero vaseline uh and my heart breaks for the victims confirmed and con- unconfirmed and their families and also the n- numerous rape survivors yeah. um again the broward county uh sheriff's department just didn't investigate the crimes they framed people and got paid for it oh my god Uh, yeah that's that's isn't that crazy saying it that way yeah they framed people yeah and got paid for it and uh it's yeah they still got their paychecks and got to go home yeah Yeah. uh and the media didn't really investigate it at all or report on the stories um and innocent people were tried and convicted and incarcerated um and it was almost too easy for the broward county sheriff's office and the media to ignore the case because the victims were black girls and women and everything that could go wrong as far as justice went wrong in this case and it took doug evans nahomia's uncle elijah that young blood who joined doug evans and the fort lauderdale pd doing the work following leads you know following evidence and not giving up um on the fact that mosley and and him finally getting caught it is it is a really just it's a case i I want to say it's bad but it it makes it it's sad i'm like scratching my head i'm scrunching my face like everything went wrong yeah yeah it's it's sad and it's also infuriating yeah yeah um like 
I am almost not qualified to be potting with you. I feel like <laughs> I'll just let you That's take the next that few is segments. not true. <laughs> because wowie kazowie, girl. Woo! I'm telling you, that is why you are my favorite wine lady. Because you get it. You get it. Your heart is so big and so full of understanding for people who are not like you. Oh, man. Yeah, just human beings, man. Human beings. That's what it's all about, y'all. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Well, speaking of human beings and not getting killed, not killing any human (laughs) beings, now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So... If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. Uh, This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So in the last episode on Mosley, um, we talked about uh, what where people who are victims of sexual assault um, are, are can go to. Rain is still a valid source. It's still a useful source, and I recommend people go there. R a i n n dot org. Um, also, we have our usual oldies but goodies. Head on a swivel. Take a self defense class virtually or on you watch one on YouTube and walk around. Beth, I love it. With, I, every time I see these words, walk around with this in your head, saying to yourself, "I will fucking kill you." Um, and that's how you uh, 
internalize not being a victim. You make yourself stronger by telling, saying those words in your head. Um, you could say it out loud too yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to just shout out an app that I found really neat um, in the age of, um, you know, just police not always having our best interest in mind. I know me as a black person, I do not trust the police and I am very afraid of them. Um, and uh, if you are in that same bag as me, um, there are now starting to come up with safety apps. Um, one I found is called Legal Equalizer. Hmm. Um, and they say it's safer, law it's, makes law enforcement encounters safer for everyone, oh, wow. police and you. And so when you can't reach a lawyer, use the legal app of your choice. And so Legal Equalizer is just one that I found. That's cool. Um, because at the end of the day, we all want to go home safely, yeah. right? Yeah. You and them. So the app is for police encounters that inform you of your rights it'll go bloop, here are your rights and alerts loved ones of your gps location and will also live stream and record the wow that's really cool yeah and you can download it at the google play store or um if you get down with iphones <laughs> at the i at the apple store um and uh it is called uh legal eq app.com cool okay well then we're gonna move on along to the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or any content by um any people of color lgbtq any marginalized or other groups by or about them so i wanted to shout out when we wrote this episode i was reading mediocre and i finished it the book is mediocre by e geoma uloa and that name might sound familiar because her book her previous book was called so you want to talk about race. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, this one is called Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Wow. <laughs> uh, and boy, oh boy, is she dropped so many gems. <laughs> uh, you, have you ever heard the phrase, God grant me the confidence of a mediocre white man? <laughs> that's, what, that's what I tell myself on Monday mornings <laughs> or before big meetings. Right. And there's a reason. There is a reason why it's cliche and this book tells why it's it's very true and it's all by design from the beginning. Wow. So uh, that is a that is my shout out mediocre uh, and I got it on Audible. Cool. Um, the other the other thing I wanted to shout out because I have been very, very depressed this oh, week. Sorry. And the drugs aren't working. I'm like, I get oh. up and I take my water and my Zoloft and I'm like, still sad. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when the drugs don't work, for me, musicals do. And there is a new one out with loads of LGBTQ and BIPOC representation. And it is called Prom huh. on Netflix. Have you seen it? I haven't, but I've oh heard uh, the name somewhere. And I guess I wasn't interested because it was called prom. So I okay. assumed it was about high schoolers going to prom. Well, here's a little synopsis. Okay. Uh, it is about high schoolers. It's about a lesbian girl in the it's this town in the middle of nowhere. And all she wants to do is go to prom and take her black girlfriend. Oh, wow. But her black girlfriend is Miss Perfect. Her mother plays is played by Carrie Washington. And um, then these uh, 
Broadway stars, Meryl Streep, oh. um, James Corbin, uh, Nicole Kidman. Um, and then uh, there's another uh, LGBTQ dude who's he's in all the shows. I can't remember which. Anyway, they're like, we need something to change our image. Let's go to this podunk town and save this young LGBTQ girl so she can have a prom. <laughs> and then they end up throwing the most inclusive prom and save everybody. And there's, I mean, the, the, the music is fantastic the cast is amazing and i watched it with my kids and i am just smiling thinking about it so that does there you sound go. fun okay maybe i'll check it, it is out so much fun All and right. it's on netflix and i think you should watch it what right do you got? on so this week i binged a podcast called something was wrong it's a podcast quote about the discovery trauma and recovery from emotionally and otherwise abusive relationships unquote Yeah. In season one, the first about seven episodes are really fascinating. They tell this story. It's one story. Okay. About a woman who um, became engaged to a man and then found out all these things about him like days before she was going to get married. (laughs) Yeah, it's a crazy story. Um, So the first seven episodes, like I said, are really fascinating. Um, The next several episodes in season one are more sort of free flowing and chatty in nature. And I didn't like them as well. Um, I I think I just like the the structured ones better. But uh, the structure picks back up in the second season. And uh, the stories are doozies. So (laughs) really interesting. And it might not be for everyone, but I enjoyed it. And that's what I've been binging this week. I really haven't been watching or listening to anything else. (laughs) Mm, Well, thank you for the recommendation and uh, we appreciate it. Uh, Well, that's all for today, everybody. Mm. We'll miss you next week. (laughs) But until then, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Hell yeah. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. detective came and knocked on the door. 
And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me down there my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.